Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Join us as we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer questions to help people with kidney disease or a transplant live well. This bonus episode features a conversation about lupus nephritis between rheumatologist Dr. Irene Blanco and Shanika Chuying, a person living with the disease. Lupus nephritis causes inflammation of the small blood vessels that filter waste in the kidneys and is one of the most common yet dangerous complications of lupus. Half of all Americans living with lupus will at some point develop lupus nephritis, and up to three out of 10 people with lupus nephritis will develop kidney failure within 15 years of their diagnosis. Dr. Blanco and Shanika will discuss the facts about diagnosis and treatment of the disease, as well as clear up some common misconceptions. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Dr. Irene Blanco, and I am a rheumatologist or a doctor that specializes in the treatment of people with autoimmune diseases like lupus and other diseases that affect uh, joints, tendons, ligaments, bones, and muscles. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Shanika Chu Ying. Uh, She is a person living with something called lupus nephritis, or otherwise known as lupus, affecting particularly the kidneys. Today, we're gonna be talking a bit about what that means, how lupus nephritis is diagnosed, how can it be treated, some misconceptions about the disease. So I'm so happy to have you here today, Shanika. And- Hello, Dr. Blanco. (laughs) And so if we could just get started. So tell me a little bit about your lupus. When was it diagnosed? Mm -hmm. What were you feeling? And we'll take it from there. I was approximately 20, 21 years old when I started to recognize symptoms. At the Mm -hmm. time, it was just joint pain. I was exercising a lot. Um, Actually, I was joining the army, so we were physically preparing. Right. And I noticed I used to get a lot of elbow pain and wrist pain. Then it became it wasn't like an injury. Like if you injure yourself, it's just one side. But as we went and got tested, I realized I was having joint pain bilaterally. So usually an injury will only happen in one joint. So I had wrist pain, left and right, elbow pain, left and right. And the doctor started looking into more different types of blood work. And he looked at my age and being a female, he said, you know what, let me send you to a rheumatologist and check your your levels for any kind of rheumatism and that's when we found out I had lupus so about 2021 sure and immediately we started a regiment of steroids and he measured my ESR rates Mm -hmm. and they were relatively low so he said you might have a mild case now mind you this was back in probably 1998 okay So, you know, certain studies weren't there, you know? So he was like, you have a mild case. So he started on uh, steroids and hydrochloroquine. Okay. At that time, did you have any other manifestations of lupus or was it mostly joint pain? It was just joint pain, yeah. And um, as the years went by, I did experience the Malar rash, the butterfly rash. I had that. That went away. It it came. It went. Um, mm-hmm. I had maybe about two or three episodes of that, and 
as I got older, that's when the organ involvement came about. When I'll say when I turned about 30 years old. Okay. That's so you were living with lupus for about seven years before you got um, other like more severe organ involvement, like the kidney disease or any other organs? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, a good 10 years. I had a good 10 wow. years. Yeah, say 10, 12 years, because I knew yeah. about it when I was 20. Right. Yeah, and when I was 30. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not, it's, it's actually really interesting because that's not very, that's not the common experience, not that anything with lupus is common, right? Because it affects yeah. every organ system from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, so everybody's disease is a little different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for a lot of patients, particularly patients of color, their kidney disease actually happens within the first two to five years of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so the fact mm -hmm. that your lupus sort of smoldered and the kidney disease came mm -hmm. later, that's not, you know, we're always on the hunt for kidney disease because we're so worried about it. Um, but you know, I'm I'm actually surprised that it it took ten years um, yeah. for for it to manifest. So, what were you feeling like? How did they diagnose it? It actually it started with my heart to begin really? with. Really? Yes. Yeah, so I active duty army, mm -hmm. and I realized I couldn't keep up. I was mm -hmm. running, and my PT test was declining. My mm -hmm. my numbers. Everything is timed. And I was like, what's going on? So maybe I need to exercise more. I'm not in shape. So I kept pushing myself. And as I found myself out of breath, um, I, it got to a point I couldn't walk from my car to the building. Oh, wow. So when, when I, I started losing energy, I went to my doctor. I told him blood work again. And that's when they realized I had high blood pressure affecting mm -hmm. the valves of my heart, which was stemming from then the kidneys showed protein in the urine so okay. it it was it was almost simultaneous but the heart mm -hmm. showed me the signs first before the sure. kidney so i had heart failure was wow. in the hospital found out my tricuspid and uh, bicuspid valve mm -hmm. were weak and i had to have open heart surgery yeah then that was 20 2014 open heart surgery. Oh, oh my so goodness. That, yeah, it was a scary time because they saw, so while I'm in the hospital, they saw my mm -hmm. kidneys was failing as well. And they made a decision that we have to save, it's easier, we have to save the heart first. It's okay. easier to get a kidney transplant than a heart mm -hmm. transplant. So those were my choices. Yeah. They said, let's try to stabilize you and get you in surgery, repair those valves, and let's see what the kidney does after that. Mm -hmm. So that was 2014. Did they give you medicine at that time? Yes, they, they actually tried chemo. They tried okay. two rounds of that, but the kidneys, I couldn't even take the fluid that was used. Wow. So immediately went on dialysis. Mm -hmm. It was cyclophosphamide, the cytoxan? Uh, yes, I believe okay. so, yes. Okay. So I got a port in my chest and they sure. started dialysis and I started feeling better. I was losing all the excess. And when I said swollen, I'm a fairly, I use, my average weight is 160, between 160, 165, normal. Okay. I can whatever I want, I'm usually that. I was over, I was like about 240 pounds of, of 
fluid. Wow. I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. It was that much fluid. As soon as they started dialysis, they realized I already had lost a lot of muscle because of mm-hmm. the weakness my body went through. And then I went down to like 120 pounds. Wow. So my, all of that was just fluid. My body was just hanging on. So I got through that. And then mentally, I had to get myself prepared to say, yes, I have my life now is dialysis, which that was a fight. I did not want to do it. I was the type of person thinking I'm just going to pass away or I'm just going to be disabled. Mm-hmm. But I made a life on dialysis and I mm-hmm. was on dialysis for 19 months. I kind of want to go back to mm-hmm. that sort of like acceptance of dialysis, right? Oh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, unfortunately, um, particularly patients of color, it is so, they tend to have very severe lupus nephritis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we throw everything but the kitchen sink at them to really try to save these kidneys. But sometimes you have to make those hard choices, right? Like, we have a machine, it's not ideal, right? It, it, it's not a great experience to have to be tied to it either mm-hmm. times a week or if you do peritoneal dialysis, you know, at home every night, whatever. Um, and so, you know, you go through a lot by the time you get that phase, but you know, there's certain organs that we can save and certain organs that we can't save. And sometimes we kind of have to sacrifice one for the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, so what do you think now in talking to these patients, right? That, that mm-hmm. are listening to us right now, what do you mm-hmm. think really helps you kind of come to that acceptance and that sort of mm-hmm. realization that maybe, okay, let me go through this now to see if potentially we can have some fix later, right? Like, mm-hmm. because I think potentially, now, was it always for you? Now, you had your acceptance moment, but that was, I'm assuming, given just your age, you know, you're, you're, you're a young woman, you're, re- mm-hmm. you're active duty army, right? So mm-hmm. you were otherwise healthy, strong, et cetera, you know, with the idea of dialysis was always going to be a bridge for you that at some mm-hmm. point we're always going to hope for a kidney transplant. We know that transplant lists are very, very long. Sometimes mm-hmm. transplants are quick. Sometimes they take a long time to get there, but that was always the hope, right? That dialysis yeah. would be a bridge to a better return. life. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Right. So I had to dig deep. Because mm-hmm. like you said, active duty, I independent, physically able. I had mm-hmm. goals in life, mm-hmm. you know, and faced with this, even though I knew I had lupus at a young age, I mean, mm-hmm. at the beginning of my military career, I managed it. But mm-hmm. most of, of the time with lupus, I went the route of being healthy, you know, mm-hmm. watching my diet, always exercise. And of course I had to, but uh, I, I was real specific on what I ate, sure. you know. And I knew the key thing with lupus is inflammation. So mm-hmm. everything I did was focused on keeping inflammation low in my body. Okay. Whether it was um, stress, because stress mm-hmm. causes outbreaks of lupus. Um, and I found out what my triggers were with food. 
Like okay. if I ate too much of this, I realized I became achy or tired or sluggish. So I would stay away from that. So sure. I always, you know, I kept food logs to figure out what it is. But after that good fight of, you know, taking care of myself eternally and lupus ramped up and decided to affect my organs. And I felt that moment of defeat. Mm-hmm. I had to find strength to want to move, to keep moving forward with my life, with my goals. I, my goals have changed, mm-hmm. but you have to become accepting of your new goals, of what mm-hmm. you're, you know? So, and I looked at my family mm-hmm. and I realized my life wasn't only my life. Mm-hmm. My life is everyone else's life. So the decisions I make, whether mm-hmm. if I give up, that means I gave up on them too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I said to myself, if I do dialysis, mm-hmm. that means I can stay here longer for them, sure. like my mother and my father. And then, you know, through the support of everyone else, they were like, you can still do things on dialysis. Mm-hmm. You can still live. You can sure. still work. You can still mm-hmm. get up and exercise. Okay. You know, and then I had to choose what kind of dialysis I wanted. Yeah. So what did you end up choosing? I chose this. Okay. This is, I'm, and I'm sure there's other people out there that's very stubborn like me. So emergency <laughs> dialysis, they give you a port in your chest, mm-hmm. right below yeah. your clavicle. So they gave me that. Being a woman, I did not want any more scars on my body. I already had one in the middle of my chest going down because they cut my sternum and now I have a bullet hole type scar from the port. port. I mean, I think lupus affects your self body image so profoundly. It does. Whether it's hair loss, rashes, scars, ports, fistulas, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for better, for worse, right? Mm -hmm women are held to certain beauty standards mm-hmm. and and we have our own, I think everybody has certain self image standards. Mm-hmm. And, and once you start going through this, and especially if you're a young person yeah. and you see all of your friends and family members, right? Like mm-hmm. wearing things that they want to wear and it doesn't, you know, they don't have scars that get shown off with cleavage revealing yes. glasses. I think that, if we don't acknowledge that, right, it's so hard to really then figure out what the patient wants and what they need, right? Like mm-hmm. all of that has to come into play when we're making these decisions and working with the patients. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And i very vocal with my nurses and doctors and they knew, so I had to get access in my arm. Mm-hmm. I chose the arm because I'll get up in the morning, I would leave, go to the dialysis center, have it done, come back. You know, nothing's done in the house. It doesn't affect anyone. You know, it's like almost like separating my life, like still Mm -hmm. see me as me. Don't come over and see me connected to a machine in my house. So it was just a little mental game I had to play to more or less still own and control what's going on Mm -hmm. with me. So I, lived with the port a little bit too long. I wasn't supposed to, but I was being stubborn. And I finally, when I got an access, a fistula, when I got the fistula while it was healing was when they called me for the kidney. 
So it was just, I never actually got to use the fistula, but it is there. So how has how's been the healing, you know, after transplant? Because transplant is major surgery, right? It's not just mm-hmm. reconnecting some pipes. <laughs> no, no, I, I had double surgery because wow. um, there was a connection problem. I started to internally bleed. So they had wow. to go back in and reconfigure the kidney and reconnect sure. and do the surgical things. And then it worked. So my healing process was, I was in the hospital a lot longer than usual. It took okay. me about maybe two, three months to walk. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I had a living donor. So oh. I was able to meet him before the surgery happened. How was that? It was nice. He's a, a prior Marine. Okay. And he felt the need to give of himself. Oh, so, that's awesome. Now, so how has it been with the transplant? So far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> so what medicines are you on right now? I am taking tacrolimus and I was taking Celsep, mm-hmm. but now they've switched me to azothioprine. How come? Well, we had a talk about, do you want to have children? Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes. So For my doctor. So I just want to clarify something for the listeners at home. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, so Celsept and tacrolimus plus or minus some prednisone is typically what we use post-transplant to make sure that you don't reject the kidney. Um, ironically enough, Celsept and tacrolimus are actually great medicines for lupus nephritis in general. And so we use them all the time for lupus nephritis. The problem is though, and this is, this is where we'll mm-hmm. take the discussion is that Celsept um, is, is harmful to a developing fetus and is known to cause very severe uh, birth defects in um, the, the baby carried by a pregnant woman that takes Celsept. So when planning a pregnancy, you have to make sure to take um, the patient off of the Celsept because you don't want the child to be born with birth defects, which is the rate of birth defects on Celsept is actually quite high. It's about 25% in anybody that's been exposed to CELSEP. So, so that's why. All right. So. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Not saying that it's going to happen, but okay. he wanted to, he knew I was in the clear. It's been four years now. Okay. So it's always been, it was an open discussion from the beginning because he sure. said, you're still within the age to have children. He says, other than this, you're very healthy. So mm-hmm. he, he told me the risk. It is a high-risk pregnancy that you will go through. Definitely. He said, we'll watch you. We'll watch you every day, you know? Like a hawk. <laughs> right, right. But um, so after I got through the period of the one year and everything was still level, um, actually after two years, he's, we revisited the conversation again. He said, how about this? He said, so there won't be no... Um, accidents or unplanned anything, your body's prepared. He said, let's go ahead and switch you. You've been level. I think it's safe to switch. So you're prepared at any time if it happens. (laughs) So that's how we, so I've I've switched now uh, eight months. Okay. I've switched. Yeah. Nice. And and it was a smooth switch. I didn't feel any differences. Yeah. Okay, What's good. Mm-hmm. And the kidney's been maintained really nicely on the azathioprine and the tacrolimus. Yes, yes. Uh, one time recently, I whenever I travel, 
mm-hmm. when I come, if I leave the country and I come back, I would get blood work done um, just to see if anything happened while I was gone, contracted anything. And the other day, my, so you're supposed to maintain a certain level being on tacrolimus and my levels had dropped. So we had to readjust the medication. So every six months or so I take blood, I give blood to be tested to see. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what changed and why it, so little things might happen like that. Sure. As long as you're regimented with your getting your blood test done and your visits, yeah. I should be able to catch anything that will happen early. Because, you know, right now your fear is rejection. Yeah, of course. Of right. course. So, so if I and- detect it sooner, maybe we could do something about it sooner. Exactly. You know, I mean, I, and I think that the important thing is, you know, azathioprine and pro and the prograph or the tacrolimus are two medicines that you can stay on while you're pregnant, right? So, you know, it, it's a good regimen not only to keep any lupus quiet, but it's also a really good regimen to keep that kidney intact because it's a heavy burden, right, to be pregnant and to have a transplant, you know, that that one little bean has to filter for you and the baby. So that's that's quite a heavy load that you're giving it like once you're pregnant. Yes, yes. So it's it's an option and I'm approaching it slowly and cautiously sure. because I know the risk. Yeah. Now, have you been on hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil this entire time? No. Um, the hydroxychloroquine, no, but prednisone, mm-hmm. yes, five milligrams since okay. the surgery, they maintained that. So what happened to the Plaquenil? The Plaquenil, I can't remember, but since the kidney transplant, you know what? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> but ever since I left the hospital, they just maintained those three key medications, either the, you know, the cell set from the beginning before they change the tacrolimus and the prednisone. I mean, key, I think it depends who you ask whether or not that Plaquenil is key. (laughs) Um, Right. right. right? So are you, are you following with a rheumatologist right now or just the kidney doctor or just the nephrologist? Um, Yeah, both. I'm with both. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, because it's important to coordinate back and forth. You know, actually, there's some data that potentially patients, once they either go on dialysis or get their transplant, when they stop following with the rheumatologist, um, sometimes their lupus starts to act up in in ways that potentially other doctors may not necessarily recognize because we're just trained to see other things, right? So it's it's good that they can, you know, that they can work together to kind of make sure that everything's in check and quiet. You know, again, the the we use azathioprine all the time. We use Tacro all the time. I and mean, we use Celsept all the time to actually treat lupus. So, you right. know, some necessarily have to add anything else where the mm-hmm. transplant medicines can actually take care of sort of everything and can be one-stop mm-hmm. shopping. It's mm-hmm. once potentially either the other manifestations of lupus start to flare up, yeah. right? Or the kidney is not doing so well. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, is this lupus nephritis in the kidney again, which can happen? Mm-hmm. Is this rejection? 
Mm -hmm. um, and then do we add or do we change, right? In your mm -hmm. case, pregnancy, it's we change, but sometimes, you know, we have to start thinking about adding to those regimens and switching them around. Yeah, yeah. And you find being a lupus patient, you become a doctor because you are coordinating a lot. You learn your blood work, like the back of your hand, because you sit in front of another doctor, you have to, you know, share the information mm -hmm. and you know your history. So mm -hmm. like me, I have to throw the cardiologist in there. You know? Sure. So I, I, I'm always in a round robin of doctors, mm -hmm. but I stay with the same doctors. So everybody, even if they're at different hospitals, associated with mm -hmm. different hospitals, they get to know each other because of me because I make sure the conversation is connected. Good. You know, I, I, I speak to other patients who are going through what I'm going through. And I tell them, don't always rely on that doctor's office faxing information to the other doctor's office. Don't always rely <laughs> yes. on that. That's you, have, you hold on to your copies, you make the phone call like, hey, I just saw so-and-so, this doctor, mm -hmm. here's what happened over there, you know? and because with medications, because every doctor might want to give you something and you're like, wait, hold on, let me see if all mm -hmm. of this mix in with everything else. Right. Oh, hands on, of course. Yeah. And plus it when you know your labs and you know your meds and you know kind of what's going on, mm -hmm. um, you know, it helps you sort of take charge of your own disease, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you have more ownership and you have a better mm -hmm. dialogue with your doctors. Um, because you actually know what's going on. So you can participate, like truly participate in your care, right? It's so true. It's so true. They're just not, you're just not there and they're talking to you. You can actually give feedback and it, that leads to other understanding of what's going on in your body. Cause as you conversate with your doctor, they're like, oh, hey, I never, I don't think I've caught that. Like they didn't understand or they didn't realize you were seeing the other doctor. Mm -hmm. to put those two findings together. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Blanco. This was really nice to really share my story with everyone. And lupus is not easy to live with, but you can live with it. And there's times when it gets very difficult. And that's the time you really need to dig deep and know your body, find out your triggers, stay close with your doctors. Yeah, um, find ones that you get along with and can talk to freely. And and lupus is something that it changes. Every day you may feel different. So you have to stay on top of yourself and do what it is to survive because your life is other people's lives as well too. You all live together and through your strength and your understanding of the disease, it, there is possibilities and there is still life and goals to be met and, and enjoyments and you can do it. That's wonderful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, it looks like we're out of time. Shanika, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your story with me. Um, you know, you've been through this real merry-go-round of ups and downs. Um, you know, I wish you so much luck and, you know, continued health and wellness. So, you know, good luck. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's just proof that like, you know, stories evolve and change over time and, you know, we'll see where the rest of this journey takes you. Thank you. 
So I really hope that this information was helpful for you as a listener. I want to remind you that if you have any questions about this or other kidney-related issues, please check the on uh, please check on National Kidney Foundation's website at www.kidney.org or contact their helpline at um, 855 NKF Cares. Again, it's toll free and it's 855 NKF Cares. At this time, I'd like to thank our sponsor, GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceuticals, and being so supportive and helping to make this program possible. Again, thank you so much, Shanika, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. And now, on behalf of the National Kidney Foundation, I'd like to wish you all good health. We want to hear from you. Do you have comments on this episode, suggestions on future topics or guests? Is there a kidney hero in your life that you'd like to honor? Email us at nkfpodcasts at kidney.org. Make sure to subscribe, review, and share our podcast with others. Thank you again for listening. We hope you join us next time. Until then, from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.